When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 60, can you believe it, of Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And we are learning about the temple and all the different things of the, well, not the temple, but the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the tent of meeting, and all that sort of thing. And um, we are going to continue reading. Let's see, where did we leave off? Uh, we looked at the, the outfit for Aaron and his sons to be priests. And we talked about the importance of having this physical appearance that gave them the authority so that the people recognized that they were the priests and that um, it elevated their importance to the community uh, by wearing the uniform. And uh, I don't think I talked about this, but uniforms used to be very, very important in our society. Like if you were a fireman, you had to wear the fireman uniform. Nurses had to wear the hat and the, you know, the nurse's uniform. Um, like everybody had a uniform. And some people still do uh, wear uniforms to kind of... S- the purpose of a uniform is to immediately identify that person as their trade. Uh, that That is, that's the purpose of a uniform. That's the purpose of wearing that sort of thing. And this was the first recorded history of a uniform that kind of uh, signified people to what their trade was. It was the trade of priest. Um, but now uniforms for all sorts of different things are ubiquitous. Nurses wear their nurses smock. Um, firemen, they wear blue pants and a t-shirt that says fireman on it. Um, everybody has kind of a, of a different uniform that, that uh, sets them apart for what their trade is. Um, uh, and this was the first instance of it, but now we're going to move on to, uh, more features in the tent of meeting, uh, in the, in the courtyard of the, of this space. Um, we're going to take a look at the altar of incense. So let's just start reading now in Exodus chapter 30, beginning at verse one, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide and two cubits high. It's horn of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each side, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover, that is, over the tablets of the covenant law, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. So we now have this um, incense altar, and all it's used for is burning incense. And incense is a fragrant, uh, perfumed type of wood. Um, 
probably something that had been dipped or uh, somehow formed with um, with sweet smells so that when you burn it, uh, it gives off that sweet smell. And um, this was, this was uh, you know, we forget because we live in such a clean society <laughs> that incense could be very, very powerful, pungent uh, to, to get rid of other odors. Like if you didn't know where the odor was come from and you didn't know how to get rid of it, you could burn incense. Um, and the, the gifts to Jesus when he was born were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so incense is one of those. Uh, myrrh is also a sweet smelling, um, fr- uh, fr- uh, gummy type of, of, in- of uh, substance that you can, uh, that you can listen, you know, smell, uh, or incense also smells really good too. Um, my, uh, my sisters, when they were in high school, loved to burn incense in their room. Um, just a sweet smell of incense. Always, whenever I went into their room, which was very rare, or you could smell the incense the coming out of their room. Um, that was very, very, very popular thing in the 60s, was to burn incense in your room. It's not so much any po- popular anymore. It, uh, I don't know of anybody that burns incense in their home Although they could, it's probably, uh, probably today they would say that burning incense is uh, bad for your lungs or it causes cancer or something. Who knows what it is? But back then, uh, they burned incense. Uh, and then the Lord tells, uh, you know, the, the dis- dimensions of this altar of incense has the poles. So this also can be carried from place to place. Uh, and then the Lord tells Moses how the fragrant offering, the burnt fragrant incense should be on every morning when he tends the lamps, then he burns it again when when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense burns all the time. So this is a kind of a fragrant smell that comes out of this tent uh, and not to offer any incense, uh, anything other than incense to burn on this altar of incense. Uh, but there should be a annual atonement where you put blood on the horns and that sort of thing. So this is, and this is, uh, now this is placed, let's see, uh, yeah, put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. So this incense is a reminder to the people that God is behind the altar, and this incense then signifies, you know, the presence of God behind the altar, but it's in front of the curtain. So you could not go through the curtain unless this incense is moved. So this kind of also blocks the way to get into the Holy of Holies. Um, that's where this altar of incense is. Now, I do have a picture of it. Um, I talked a little bit about a traveling, uh, this, this traveling tent of meeting, this tra- traveling tabernacle. Maybe it's called the traveling tabernacle. Uh, where they actually set this up uh, in a parking lot or something like that, and people can come and take a look at it. And I have another picture of what it what it could have looked like. Um, it the picture doesn't really do it justice because it's painted gold, and um, the actual thing was actually not painted gold, but was covered with gold. So it must have been very, very uh, incredibly ornate and beautiful. Um, but it but you can see the altar of incense. Um, a cubit wide, a cubit long, you know, cubit by cubit, and then two cubits high. Uh, so, and I think what is cubits like twenty inches or something like that. So you can see the you can see the altar of the incense, um, but but it would have been much more spectacular 
uh, in person. I mean, it, it, with the gold on it, it, it would have been incredibly spectacular. Um, all right, so that's the altar of incense. Then uh, the Lord tells Moses about the money. This is beginning in chapter 30, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, whose those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So this is like an atonement every time a census is taken. Um, and this is a this is a half shekel. It's a sanctuary shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. Uh, this half shekel is an offering to the Lord. So now a couple interesting things. So they didn't do a census all the time. As a matter of fact, um, that there's not a whole lot of recorded census, but you know, periodically they would record a census. And then when they do the census, if you are um, over 20, then you have to give money. And what's interesting is it's the same amount of money for everybody. It's not a graded scale. Remember, the tithe is a graded scale. The tithe is something that you give to the Lord. It's 10%. Uh, anything over that 10% is an offering. But this atonement is a as an amount for each person and it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor like everybody has to give this um so if you're poor this could be a, an incredible if you're poor this is a larger proportion of your income than if you're wealthy if you're wealthy it's nothing to you so it'll be very easy for a wealthy person to say, well, I will pay this for, for people, right? If you're, if you're too poor to pay this, I'll pay it for you. So you over, you know, you tax the wealthy or you have them pay the atonement tax and the poor people get off hook, but not for the atonement tax. In the atonement tax, everybody must pay something. And that's why it's called the atonement tax or another word for it would be the redemption tax. And the reason why God set it up for everybody to pay is because everybody needs atonement. None, nobody is immune from atonement. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't come for just the wealthy. He doesn't come for just the poor. And everybody sins, so everybody needs atonement from God, which Jesus provides. It says in John... Uh, uh, no, I'm not sure where it says. If for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's the Bible verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, that one shows in Scripture that everybody has sinned. Like nobody can say, well, I didn't sin. Everybody sins. Everybody falls short. So everybody needs the atonement. And nobody else can pay your atonement tax for you. This is something that you have to pay. And you say, well, I don't have the atonement tax. What do I do? Well, that's on you. You have to figure it out. You have to 
um, maybe go to somebody, you know, work for them, you, you, you know, save up for it. Everybody knows that this is happening. They would give plenty of time when they're taking a census, like not every year. This is so this forces you at some level to make sure that you always have this atonement tax ready to go because you never know when the when the census is going to happen. Perhaps you do know when the census is going to happen, but everybody has to pay the census tax, this atonement tax. And this carries forward into the Roman Empire. It carries forward into the Jewish uh, dynasty, the Jewish Empire. They do these uh, atonement tax census things periodically, and nobody's immune for it. Because if you're going to do a census, you want to count everybody. You don't want to uncount somebody. Because periodically, you just need to know how many people you have. So, And the whole idea of doing a census is an interesting concept. Why would anybody do a census? Because it helps it helps gauge the size and the strength of the crowd, right? If you want to know how, if you're the king, of course, there aren't any kings yet, but if you're the king and you want to know how strong your tribe is or how strong your dynasty is, you do a count because then you know how many people are in your kingdom. And I suppose, I mean, if you were a, a good king, you might talk to other kings and say, okay, how much does it cost for you to run your kingdom? I have a million people, it cost me this much. And go, oh, I got two million, it cost me this and whatever. I mean, I don't know if you, they actually did these conversations. Probably available at some point because knowing how many people are in your kingdom is a good number to know. And then you write that down and you see if your kingdom's growing or if it's shrinking and what the strength is. If an army is going to come and do battle with your kingdom, you might ask the opposing army, okay, how big is your kingdom? And if they tell you the truth, if they say, well, we've got 15 million people. And you say, well, I have a million. Then you know you're numbered 50, outnumbered 15 to 1. And you might want to reconsider going battle with the, the opposing kingdom. Unless God's on your side and he says, you have to battle. I will be with you and I will protect you. Even though you're outnumbered 15 to 1, I will protect you. It's just a good idea to know how big. And the bigger the kingdom, of course, the more strength there is. There's this whole concept that the bigger something is, the stronger it is. It's true even today. The biggest corporations that we have, Amazon, Apple, Tesla, all of these big corporations, Microsoft, the strength of those corporations is depending upon how many employees or what the capital of that corporation is, the, the net worth of that corporation, all these things tell you the strength of that corporation. So if you go to battle with the corporation, you need to know that they've got more money than God. I say that all the time. They have more money. God has all the money, but they have more money than God. And you have to have a pretty strong case to fight somebody who is well capitalized. This is, a, this is a true law forever for everybody, which is why oftentimes if you're going to fight a corporation, it's not just a single person, but they prepare what they call a class action lawsuit. And the class action lawsuit is a good thing when used properly to fight a corporation because a corporation is so powerful. So you gather a lot of people to fight the corporation. Uh, the same thing is true uh, in many parts of the world where they have unions. Uh, if you are if you're a labor if you are labor in the corporation, the corporation isn't listening to you. Then you can form a union, and you can say nobody can work for you 
until you meet our demands. And that is another way to force the union, you know, to force the corporation to treat the union fairly. Now, in a world where um, where labor is scarce, for whatever reason, the, the need for a union kind of diminishes, but it doesn't go away. There are times when corporations need to be kept in check. And so the union is an actually, it's a good way to kind of keep the corporation in check because the corporation always has more power than the individual. That's just the way it is. And um, I don't know how we got off on corporations and unions, except that uh, th this this particular atonement money, it is, it is for every person and nobody can get away from it. Everybody must pay the atonement tax. All right, so um, I think that's everything I wanted to say in the atonement tax. We'll continue on to the next article, which is this, the basin for washing, beginning of verse 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be the lasting ordinance for Aaron and for his descendants for the generations to come. So this uh, offering actually is um, a, a, a cleanse offering. It's a water and it's used to be washing. They're supposed to wash their hands. Now, uh, probably this got translated into baptizo as a washing, although I guess I could look that up and see in this. At some point, the Jewish text was translated into Greek. And this was done very, very early. And that whole thing was done by a group of 70 wise elders in Israelite community. So they brought to them the text, the Jewish text. And they said, we want you to translate this into Greek. Greek is the lingua franca of the day. At the time of Jesus, it was lingua franca. And right after the time of Jesus, it was Greek. And so they said, well, if we're going to translate, anytime you translate, that must be, uh, that, that is um, an interpretation because the original language never translates into a new language. So it's an interpretation. So it requires people with a theological background to translate that text. So they got 70 elders together to translate from the Jewish, the Hebrew into Greek. And those 70 elders, the story goes, all translated and they brought it together and all 70 of them translated it the same way. And so that gave validity to the translation to say, yes, this is a proper good translation from the Hebrew to the Greek. And that Greek translation is given a fancy name. It's called LXX, which a Greek, it's a Roman numeral for 70. And it's also called the Septuagint, the Septuagint, which is a Latin word for 70. So that translation is called the Septuagint. In the translation called the Septuagint, It'd be interesting to see what this washing, is it a baptizo, which is Greek? Uh, actually, was it Septuagint is translated into Latin, yeah. It may not have been translated. No, it's translated into Greek. It is a Greek, yeah, it's Greek. Sorry, it is Greek. So it'd be interesting to see in translation if it actually uses the word baptizo. 
Um, I can pull it up, but it would take a little bit of time to do that. Uh, so they, but this is a, this is not a ritual. It probably is a ritual washing at some level. Um, they're going to wash their hands. You know, will they end up doing it ritually? Probably not. When you get to the Passover meal and you wash your hands, it's a full washing of your hands. It's not a ritual. A ritual, well, no, you pour water over your hands. Um, so the... You know, what is the difference between a ritual washing and an actual washing? I mean, obviously, uh, it's to symbolize. It was before soap, so it, they didn't use soap. They placed and they poured. Um, so at some point, this this washing probably became very ritualized, I guess is probably what I want to say. Uh, and that ends up being in the Passover. It's also a ritual washing. It ends up being baptizo, which is a which is a ritual washing to clean you from your sins um, that we do today. Uh, we don't actually scrub you down. <laughs> we don't get the soap and get behind the ears and and you know under the armpits and all that sort of thing. We we just it's a ritualized washing. It's to symbolize the cleansing of your sin, which which can only be done in the heart. So anything that you're doing is a baptism. Even though you go all the way down, you come back up, and you might be, you know, you might, if you do that kind of baptism where you're completely immersed, or if you do the ritual where you're we're sprinkling or any other kind of water on the body, it's not meant to clean you. It's meant to signify to you a baptism. That's what it's meant. All right, enough of that. Uh, anointing oil. We'll continue on. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 200 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer, it will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law, the table and all of its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so that they will be most holy and whatever touches them will be holy. So this is kind of the basis for holy water. Um, that the Roman Catholics use, that, that you know, that somebody consecrates that oil, oil and be, or water, and it becomes oil. They do it with oil too, but water. Um, but here, God is giving a very, very specific recipe for what this looks like. And listen to the to the uh, recipe. It's liquid myrrh, and it's fragrant cinnamon. We, uh, I. I could, I have some myrrh. I'll find it and I'll smell it and describe it to you. Uh, fragrant cinnamon, uh, shekels of fragrant calamus. Uh, calamus, if you've heard of calamine lotion, I bet it's about the same thing. 500 shekels of cassia uh, and then a hint of olive oil. And all this puts together and you mix it up and it gives a smell. And that is the smell that's supposed to go into the anointing of the tent of meeting. Uh, and then anybody who touches it um, will be holy. Uh, so there's this um, huge uh, 
there's a huge indication from God that the whole entire tent of meeting is to be holy. And how do you make it holy? Well, you mix up these things and you place it on the altar and on the horns and all this sort of thing. You touch it to the robes. Everything becomes holy. And then if you end up touching this, then you also kind of are holy. You've been a set apart, that you're part of the nation of Israel, that you are this, uh, the word for holy in Hebrew is kadosh. So you're, you're kadosh uh, before the Lord. Um, and it's kind of a cool thing. I guess I'll end with this, that that God makes a way for a person to become holy, to become concentrate, concentrated, become consecrated, to become set apart for God. Uh, how are we set apart for God? We are set apart for God by our baptism. That's when we become holy. That if that water touches us, now we become holy and set apart and consecrated for God. And that all kind of comes back to this anointing oil. Um, I'll just, one more last, one more last verse. Verse 30, uh, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anybody else's body and do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. So not only is the formula, you know, patented and sacred, whoever makes it, it can only be made for use of the priest and to anoint the priestly things. That's it. Nobody else can make the same formula. So when you smell that smell, you know that something sacred is there. It's another way to show that this is set apart. Now that Oh man, we could go interesting. You know, Andy Warhol, who was a famous artist from the 60s, would every time he would do a new artwork, he would get out and create a specific, uh, he would mix specific oils and then he'd put it in a bottle and he would, every time he'd make that artwork, he would smell that oil. And then uh, he would put that oil away and even after the artwork was sold, if he pulled out the oil and smelled it, it brought back all the memories of that artwork and how he created it. And somebody did an article on this. And apparently your smell is one of the last things to go. And it's also one of the things that is the strongest memory mnemonic. We think writing is a good memory mnemonic. We think uh, listening, auditory, you know, touch and all that sort of thing. But your smell is apparently a very, 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 very powerful way to remember. And so if your parents wore a certain perfume uh, that was unique to them and you smelled that, you would immediately think of your parents. My dad used to wear Old Spice um, and I still, you know, if I smell that Old Spice, it still brings me back to my dad. He doesn't wear Old Spice anymore, but he did when growing up. He do the, you know, the Old Spice stuff. And my mother had a very specific perfume that she would wear that my sisters now wear. So it's it's a very unique signifier to my to my parents. We don't we don't do much with perfumes anymore. Some people wear wear perfumes. Obviously, you know, I wear deodorant, which is a totally different function than what this is. This is a unique perfume that indicates that you are in the presence of holiness. The priests are holy. Everybody's anointed. This whole smell is associated with holiness. And nobody else can make this smell except for the priestly class. 
Ah, uh, or wear this smell. All right, I think we'll end it there. So um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious God, uh, thank you for this day. Help us to remember that you are holy and you are set apart and that we too, because of our baptism, are set apart. Keep us safe until we meet again. In Jesus' name.